Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. This holiday season, you can keep the snow. Keep the fireplaces, the chestnuts roasting on an open fire. This is South Florida. Give us the sun, the 60-degree weather, and give us a holiday tradition that suits our offbeat style. Give us Fred. Fred the tree, that is. For more than 10 years, Keys residents have secretly been decorating a shaggy Australian pine that grows on a section of the Seven Mile Bridge to Key West. It lights up at night, bringing holiday cheer to the folks headed to and from the Keys. Yes, they named the tree Fred. Fred has its own Facebook page and following. Fred is even set to appear in an upcoming movie with the actor Jake Gyllenhaal. What possesses people to do this, especially when it's technically illegal? Let's ask the couple who started this tradition, Tim and Loretta. They lead the crew of anonymous Christmas elves who are out there every year dressing up Fred for the holiday season. We're not using their last names to protect their identity. There is this tradition in the Keys, right, where you are heading down from the middle Keys to the lower Keys, and there is this condemned part of the old Seven Mile Bridge, and in a little island section of that bridge grows a tree, an Australian pine that people have dubbed Fred the Tree. And during the holidays, Fred gets some Christmas spirit. So can you tell, can you tell us a little bit about that, about uh, what is this deal with Fred the Tree? Well, I can, I can tell you, we started about 15 years ago and decided one year that it would be great just to get up there and put some lights on Fred the Tree. It was quite a bit smaller. It was probably maybe uh, you know, 25% of the size back then so you know it was probably 15 maybe 15 18 feet tall at the time maybe so we decided one year that we're going to go up and and uh, put some lights on it so we went to home depot and grabbed some lights that you really put out in your yard they're the little candy cane lights but we took the candy canes off of them and uh we we bought a couple hundred of these lights a couple hundred okay yeah yeah when we put them just inadvertently all over the tree. And we thought it was just going to be so spectacular, you know, that the, the, uh, we're going to light up, we're going to light up the the ocean here with, uh, with these lights we got for Fred. And so, so we came over the bridge and we're like driving by the tree. We're driving up to the tree. We're like, what, where are our lights? Right. And uh, you're driving by it after, after you've, after you've decorated it, you're driving by at night on another day. Yeah. And, and at night, and, and you really couldn't even really hardly see the light. Oh, I mean, boom, boom. it was so dim that we're, we're, we're like, okay, that was kind of a, you know, that was kind of a letdown. So, oh, so you, you were year. like, because I, I will say I've seen pictures of it and I was like, if the Charlie Brown Christmas tree grew a little bit more, it would be Fred the tree. He's a little, he's a little shaggy. Uh, he's not like one of these perfectly pointy pines. He's kind of a, you know, right. the Australian pines are kind of shaggy. Uh, they got uh, points coming out of it. But that's that's kind of the uh, the th- the thing that makes it cute, right? Is that it's kind of less not spectacular a tree. It, it actually actually kind of reminds me of the singing bush from the Three Amigos for the folks that are old <laughs> enough to remember that. Yeah, well, it's been blown sideways so many times with the hurricane. So, you know, that's why it kind of almost lays sideways in, in some parts of it. So, and that's from the wind, I think. It, it's just, you know, it's so resilient. Oh, so that's, uh, it's a little bit of a metaphor for the keys then. It's like this survivor 
this survivor that won't go away. You can't knock us down. All right. So uh, you got you got to tell me a little a little bit about what kind of person decides to decorate this tree. So tell me a little bit about yourself. So it's you and is it your wife, Loretta? Yeah, my wife. Well, tell me a little bit about you first. Are you, are you guys, Loretta, are you a Keys native? Are you a transplant? Transplant. We came here on a Corona commercial. <laughs> uh, wait, we wait, were... wait, what? <laughs> tell me about that. Uh, we were snug as a bug and a rug in Michigan and it was October and uh what part of what part of michigan are you from if if i'm looking at my hand right isn't that what they do in michigan carlos you're looking at your hand if i'm looking at my right hand with the palm facing towards me right my thumb is sticking out and my four fingers are together where Uh, on the palm are you from put your finger like right in the center of your hand okay right in the center of my hand okay so this this is something that michiganders do uh, yeah, that's that, not where we're from, but I just wanted to see if you do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you guys are um, Keys people now. You really are Keys people. So uh, we're watching this Corona commercial, and it's the one that they still play, Feliz Navidad, and it's this lovely place with this tiki hut and three coconut palms and the palm trees light up and then Feliz Navidad appears on the screen and I asked my husband where he thought that was and he had been to the Keys and he said I think it's the Keys and so we moved our boat down here and lived aboard for four years and literally like that was October we were here by the middle of December (laughs) so it didn't take long to just put it all in motion and that's what we did and were you guys living on a boat in Michigan or do you had a boat or we had a boat and so we moved the boat here over land or you sailed down we had it shipped down so it was a it was the size was perfect to have it shipped that we didn't have to run it down. Tell me about it. Let me kind of uh, picture you guys living <laughs> on that boat. What? How long is it? Oh is my, it a sailboat? Oh, my goodness, Carlos. It's 32 feet of love is what we called it. Ooh, that is not. Okay, that's a good ha- size boat. Uh, it's not that big. And you, like, my life consisted of two bikinis, one pair of shorts, one shirt, and a pair of flip-flops. God, like, it was. You are living in the right place. You are doing it right. <laughs> I'm looking at my producers thinking, like, Guys, we're doing it all wrong. These guys are doing it right. <laughs> so you guys you pretty... guys ship your boat down, and you just decide to live in the Keys? So, Tim, what made you decide to go along with this idea, or did you guys come up with together to say, we're going to leave the frozen tundras of Michigan to the sunny southeast of, of Florida? Well, we've seen that commercial, and I, you know, I said, you know, we, together we've seen this commercial, and I said, you know, we really should be in a place like that for Christmas. And uh, we basically stayed in the Paro Blanco Marina for four and a half years. That's uh, that's where we docked it and just stayed right there and, and you know, went out and played on it and lived on it. So it, it strikes me that you guys come down to Florida, as many Northerners do, and good for you, good for us, and all based on a commercial where a palm tree a solitary, lonely palm tree is decorated with Christmas lights. And you guys see this solitary, scraggly-looking Australian pine that is an invasive species like you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and you yeah. decide to recreate the commercial here in, in, awesome. in the Keys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah. I think folks have to understand that this is not like going out to your front yard and hanging some strings on the tree. This is the tree is on a piece of elevated highway that's basically an island. You can't it's not connected to any other parts of the highway. It's part of the, the condemned old uh, Seven Mile Bridge. There's a new Seven Mile Bridge that runs next to it, next-ish to it. So how do you do this? How do you manage to to decorate this tree in the middle of the ocean? Well, it's a quite a bit of Christmas magic. <laughs> uh, Spoken like a some, like a Fred the Tree holiday elf. Yeah, so somebody has to go up first, and that's usually me. And then uh, then. I helped the rest of the elves up. This year we had, you know, probably close to what uh, thirty-five uh, people that were helping put it together because it's it's gotten bigger over the years, and then you know about ten thousand lights all together. So I, but I I understand that it's like it's a flotilla that goes out there. I understand there's a bobbing boat and a shaky ladder involved, right? Yeah, there's a there's a few uh, there's a few boats now. We we started out with just one. Now we're up to about five or six boats. That's and, a flotilla. Uh, yeah, and you do have a a party boat that goes out the, the following day. Oh, like, now you're talking. Now you're talking, Tim. Well, and so this is all set up by either you are a drinker or a doer because right. there are tools involved, <laughs> and we're up on a. And we are, and you will have people repeat it during the day. I'm a doer. I'm a doer. I'm not a drinker. <laughs> Generally, the the drinkers will lose the tools. They will they will put them in their pockets, and then of course you got the doers trying to figure out how to get the the product, you know, the, the whole tree up. And it's quite a quite an operation because the tree is about uh, 50 feet in the air including the star now and uh, now that the tree is getting bigger if you notice uh, in the pictures or if you're driving by the, the tree is getting bigger so next year we'll have to go up another 15 feet and to keep up with red you know oh boy so, it's going to be like ringling brothers out there in a minute all right so i have to ask you tim and loretta like how do you power something like that because this is not there's no electrical outlet out there right i, I think there's like a solar ray, array involved uh, yeah, there's magic. Magic. Uh, magic. And magic. There's, there's also some some of that fairy dust. You know, love. But, uh, there's a lot of love. <laughs> lights going. But it's a lot of power. You know, we, we actually uh, have been improving the, uh, the the systems as we go. But um, I think that you know every year it just gets brighter and better. I look. Listen, I'm not I'm not advocating for a defacement of public property. I'm just saying because. Yeah, because technically, there's uh, there's some like gray area in the legality of that, right? But but everybody sees it as good fun, and maybe the authorities look the other way. How do you guys work around that? Well, you know that was a, a good question several years ago because we had everybody involved from you know the Alps included workers from every walk of life here, you know, from the government to wherever you know they worked in, in their daily you know jobs, and they they were helping me. And they said, Tim, you know, what, what do we do if, if, you know, they come after us? And I said, well, you just point to me and tell them I'll go to jail for Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it was a running joke. And, and, and basically, uh, they really, I think that everybody appreciates it so much that they kind of look the other way for a few weeks you yeah. Know, yeah. and just enjoy it. Well, I, I'm sure that it really comes down to whether it feels safe. And I, I'm curious, has have has there any, been any year where it felt too dangerous to do? Or or can you share some stories about over the years about 
you know, the challenges of being able to do that? The only challenges is really on the boats, you know, just basically your your normal things and just getting on and off the boats and making sure that uh, people are, you know, we have all the right safety stuff, but really the boating is the most dangerous part of it. Uh, we keep people, you know, fairly in check, you know, and the people are, they have a job to do. They generally, you know, have been doing it for years here and they, they get up there and the, the newbies, we call them, the new elves, they... Mm-hmm. They help out, but they'll just stand there for a minute and just just kind of realize as we were putting this together, they're like, this is just like a machine. You know, we put it all together on a really orderly fashion. We can we can have it uh, up and lit and inside of six hours, you know, how do you how do you pick your elves? Like, how do you know uh, how do you weed? How do you weed the wheat from the chaff there? Well, well uh, we go to the monkey. <laughs> okay. Sometimes they find the monkey. Yeah, let's, the let's, I heard a record scratch there in my brain. Scratch. So you go to the monkey. What is the monkey? Please explain. The monkey's a bar, our bar that's open till 4 a.m. Ah. If they're still there at 4 a.m., they are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody drunk enough to be in here at this time is probably crazy enough to help us decorate this tree. Right, exactly. I love that so much. I can't even tell you. All all kinds, you know, all all kinds of people, and and people have been waiting to get on the elf list for for years. There's a waiting list to be on the elf list. An invite, and and then they get to come, and they're just so excited, you know. What? How do you know when you've been selected? Does uh, something show up on your doorstep? You've been selected to to decorate Fred the tree. Generally, it, it goes like this. I've been waiting. You know, they, they'll ask you, I've been waiting for, for an invite for, you know, this period of time. And you're like, okay. And uh, no, no, you got a drinker, a doer, or oh. a drinker, a doer. What are you? Because okay. we're, we're, you know, generally full, full on both fronts. And they'll generally tell you they're, they're a doer, you know, because they think they're, you know, they're going to do something. But if you know them well enough and you say, well, you're really a drinker. So, like, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. You've been you've been doing it now for how long? Going on fifteen years. I think this will be the next year will be the fifteenth year. So we'll have a, a bigger, a little bigger celebration. But yeah, about fifteen years. And what does it keep? What does it take to keep it going? Like, how how have you guys kept the the energy and the excitement for this beyond like a one year lark? Well, it's pretty cool because on January and in, in January it's a takedown. You gotta you gotta go back up, do the whole thing reverse, and that's a smaller group of people. But then we basically sketch out the plan for the following, you know, several months. You know, in um, late November for going back up. But um, one of the things that Loretta does is she pulled the lights together the whole month of November and basically test every one of those lights and make sure that all the angels are, you know, structured right, nothing's gonna fall apart, rebuilding things, you know, just different different things. The star is uh, pretty amazing, uh, almost 10 feet tall. Well, well there's another 5,000 lights on that. So she'll check every one of those lights. So it takes an entire month of November to basically prep for the hall, you know, to get it all ready to go. So yeah. tell tell us how folks can follow the the Fred the Tree throughout the year because I understand uh, Fred is on social media. <laughs> yeah, just go to Facebook and type in Fred the Tree. The profile picture is the Fred 
decorated at night, lit up right now. So Wonderful. Well, to you two Christmas elves, you Fred Tree elves, I appreciate you guys making the time to talk with us. Uh, Carla, thank you. Thank you so much, and it was uh, really a pleasure. That was Tim and Loretta. They're the leaders of the team of anonymous Christmas elves who decorate Fred the Tree every year. Again, we're not using their last names to protect their identity from the Grinch. Still to come, we take a look back at the life of the inventor of Miami's famous coffee windows, the Ventanita. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. On today's holiday episode, we're taking it back to our conversation about South Florida's famous coffee windows, the Ventanita. It's where we meet to drink Cuban coffee and swap stories. It's where politicians stump and give speeches. The inventor behind these iconic meeting spots died this year on November 26 at age 89. Felipe Valls Sr. arrived in Miami in the 1960s with his wife, two kids, and a third on the way, and he left behind a legacy that goes beyond becoming one of the most influential restaurateurs in South Florida. But there's more behind the businessman. His loved ones remember the stories of how he helped recent immigrants who had little to nothing, like he once did. Whether it was offering someone a job or a place to stay, he affected these people's lives. His son, Felipe Jr., told us more. I know that you've been preparing also to give his eulogy, which is something that I had to write for my own father not too long ago. Has it given you a chance to think about what he's meant to Miami culture, to Miami to Miami's Cuban community, to Miami at large, does, has it given you a chance to kind of reflect a little bit on, on what he's meant from the Ventanitas to the Churrasco? Well, you know, uh, Felipe Sr. was a guy who was just a huge heart with two legs. He was a very, very friendly. Uh, you know, he could uh, entertain a king to, to a pauper. He treated everybody the same. It was just amazing what a natural kind of person he was. He never... He's just, uh, he helped so many people, would give them apartments and lend them money. And if it was from Cuba coming in, we're even more and we'll get him a job. He just kind of lived to, to, to help people within, you know, within the business. And he was always there up front doing that. I was more kind of in the background, you know, working the kitchens and so forth. And, he was, and so it started becoming kind of that kind of personality uh, that he started kind of building his reputation on. But... I think, you know, the value of Cuban food and how it became the, the common thread in, in youth. Um, I mean, I went to a school that was nowhere near La Carreta. Today, there's one pretty close to it on Bird Road. And I'm thinking, you know, we were a small amount of Cubans within a large Anglo, uh, um, you know, group of students. And I, and I used to eat at Burger King and in hot dogs and this and that. And, and Eso no comida, <laughs> yeah. as Cubans would say. That's but, not real But when food. I would get to lunch with my Cuban sandwich, bro, I could barter anything on the lunch table. Because <laughs> they were eating two white breads with bologna and cheese. And I had a pound of uh, meat and, and, and uh, Emmental Swiss cheese. And, and I would cut it up and trade for muffins and bananas. Whatever I wanted, I could trade off with, with my sandwich. Go but I think, I think the value of that food and bringing the Cuban community kind of together is really the greatest thing. The, the other is, you know, from the political standpoint, and he was always up front with everything that had to do with Cuba and 
and meeting and just like the, the political part of it. For instance, when Clinton won uh, the presidency, he, President Clinton, did a, a dinner for a certain small group of Cubans that were on his side as a Democrat and that helped him, even though back then, just like now, the majority of Cubans were kind of leaning towards Republican. Right. Uh, and That's really interesting. That, and, and, and he always, he, he, he became a hub for that rather than one side or the other. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. We, we always, I mean, for 40 years, we've been doing interviews and programs, as you know, and all that. And one thing we always maintained, and I was always very strong about that is, First, no political publicity on our windows or, or area or parking, zero. And I've had friends of mine run for important positions, and I told them, if I do it with you, i got to do it with everybody. And we're totally neutral for that because that's what, that's what brings in conversations and unity and comments and wanting to visit. Because if not, then you're, you're only one-sided. And if you're one-sided, you're just kind of being... Waving the same flag that everybody's waving. They don't. We don't need that. We need common common ground. So we've always kept it like that, and that's why we've had different, uh, you know, presidents of different sides come in. And and so anyway, at the end, we brokered Macanoso and the Cuban Foundation to come in through the kitchen <laughs> and force Clinton to meet with them and talk about what was going on in Cuba at that time wow. and the adjustment acts and all that. What so so Versailles being just a restaurant had this kind of key to to the to the Cuban vote, to the Cuban thought, to the to the Cuban lobbying team because Cubans always had strong lobbying in Washington and strong presence. Today, look at the Senate, there's three Cuban senators in the most exclusive club in the world, which is a hundred members. And there's three of them, one Democrat and two Republicans. So they've always been very much and that in Versailles just happened to be there. And, and, and it was, a, you know, it was always nourishing. We, we, we nourish that situation and help it and, and do as many. I've done six million interviews about the Ventanita and this and that. Like, you know, not so much now on who invented it, but why are they here? And with this president, they came. It's just been endless amount of uh, time. And it just became now kind of the city hall of the Cuban people here in Miami. That, that's really the strongest of all the elements. It's a tremendous brand. And then... Felipe himself, who was always a gentleman to everyone, small and big. I'll always remember the morning, because it was morning, it was like 1 a.m. when I found out that Fidel Castro had died. And I remember the first place that I went to was Versailles. I came out here, I was the first reporter, I was standing on top of a, uh, a newspaper bin with my camera and watching the crowd gather. What was that day like for your dad? Where was your dad on that day? Did he, did he come to Versailles the day that Castro had died? And what do you remember about I'm that? I'm trying to remember if it was when he first thought, we, everyone thought he had died, which was a bigger, almost bigger celebration than when he actually died. <laughs> and then when he actually died. Uh, no, what he, as far as I remember, I mean, obviously I came right away and started kind of organizing the... Start selling coffee. No, more, more than, we're always ready for sales, right? We're, yes. <laughs> we're used to 1,000, 2,000 people a day. But... You know the onslaught of people and cars, and yes. they take over. They take over the whole block. You know. I was here when Lichirino showed up, and he let everybody in a rendition of "Ya Viene Llegando," yeah. the the song. You know, our their time is coming. <laughs> Eventually came, and we were. I remember sitting in the back dining room there, 
and we were just there in the table kind of enjoying the moment, enjoying the scene outside of 10,000 people celebrating, because we've really never had protests here in Versailles, though, with the Liang incident, right. the media nationally kind of made it seem like there was this big uh, protest, like these protests you've seen now in the U.S. and burnings and this and that. No, they were protesting their position, but, but it was a friendly. That, that was the most kind of a hot one. Everything else was pretty much a party and a celebration. Yeah, it's, it's been, that's the thing is it's, whenever there was an issue of Cuba, that's where you saw some, some form reflected here, whether it was Elena Gonzalez, whether it was Castro, uh, finally on the 10,000th time uh, actually uh, being deceased, uh, there was always a ref something reflected here at Versailles. And was, I, I know that you guys have had a lot of restaurants over the years. Did your dad, did your dad have a favorite? Did he have a favorite restaurant? No, I don't. I mean, I think Versailles in our hearts is our favorite sure. because of what it represents beyond just the plain restaurant or the, the, the restaurant itself. Um, I mean, he, he enjoyed Casa Juancho a lot when, you know, as we had it, he enjoyed El Cid, you know, the finer dinings, obviously, is where he'd take most of the people that I was always there welcoming them. And, uh, and then La Carreta as a chain itself. Uh, you know, he's proud of, you know, what I've done in the airport, obviously, with 20-something locations. So he's kind of proud of everything, liked everything. Favorite is tough to tell. But I, I will tell you, he, he is a foodie, as you are, and, and goes to more restaurants even than I. Is that right? And it's constantly telling me, go check this and go look at this. And why don't you do it like this and this and that. And then I got to go out there and, and figure it out in the kitchen. So he loves, in general, going out. But I don't think he loved anything more than a good home you know, home cooked in our restaurants, home style cooking of Cuban food. It's, it's a struggle, but we're lucky that we've been able to continue doing it. You know, we've bought all our locations, so we, we, we have that advantage. I'm not having yeah, to. If you own real estate, you're, yeah, uh, no one can force you out with a higher rank. Today, to operate a restaurant like La Garreta in today's rental market, uh, it's almost impossible. I mean, that's why you can keep prices low. because you Any rental anywhere is fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a month. Sure. And so, like, that's, that's part of a secret, an open secret, right, in the restaurant world, that if you can own your real estate, then you can keep the prices down and people will come and, back. And you can keep your place for, for many, many years and decades because you don't have the, that landlord or the price or the... Because the, Miami has gotten, you know, extremely expensive as far as real estate and, and rental. It really is incredible, you know, so... I, but arguably, the most famous... Cuban restaurant, maybe in the world, is Versailles. How did your dad, did he ever discuss that? Did you ever discuss the fact that you guys had built something that endured in that way? Well, I mean, after it happened and we kind of realized it, yes, it, it wasn't planned to be that. I think it just happened, like we said, organically and through the, the coverage and the media. Always with one thing in mind, there has to be consistency. You have to be improving and it has to be real. And our food is definitely real, as you know. Everything is from scratch, everything is real. And, and I think it's, it's even a bigger point, which is the food in Cuba itself is not this food. This is the food of, of the diaspora. It's like a food that left that country and Absolutely. landed here and now exists here because of people like your dad. That's that's got to be something that he must have been proud of. The fact that you no, preserved the he food preserved tradition. He preserved it is the word. He preserved that 
basic culinary Cuban food. Now, today, if Cuba would have been free, obviously there'd be higher levels of the food, uh, much more modern, minimalistic, uh, Art Nouveau, every kind of level, more Spanish, more this, more that. And some of that's happened in Miami, but, but not that much. It's kind of exploded in other realms of cuisine. And Cuban food has stayed very much as that original kind of basic food. And our concepts have been that family type concept. So the price has kind of stayed there. And, and there's been restaurateurs from other cities that have come Cuban and opened Cuban restaurants, very expensive for the same thing. And it's not that a, a dish isn't worth $50. Or $40. It's just that like, Lacarretas and Versailles are selling them at 16 so it just kind of dwarfs that, that, that kind of thing. And, and that's kind of where we want to stay. We want to stay at that popular level. Very good food at great prices for the whole family and, and all the other expensive and finer things, um, you know, for others because that's... Will you talk to us about a little bit when, you're, when your dad passed? I know you got hundreds of texts. I think you said that uh, you stopped answering and you even missed a call from Senator Rick Scott, Florida Senator Rick Scott. What, what kind of, was there someone that surprised you that you got a message from uh, an old competitor or somebody, something like I that? I got various competitors and um, yeah, we've got a lot of, a lot of different restaurateurs have called me, uh, politicians, people from Spain, childhood friends of mine, uh, high school friends of mine, People I haven't talked to in 40 years, others that I see all the time, and, and a numerous amount of uh, politicians and senators and, and, and governors and ex-governors. Um, you know, again, for all of them and, and most of the community in you know, Versailles, more than myself and my father, the, the Versailles kind of phenomenon that goes around it and, and what it means and the kind of the symbol it is, is really you know, the greatest legacy as far as the business. The legacy in, in the family is more Philippe and his way of being, right? And, and how he was such a simple guy and spoke to everyone. At whatever level, it was always the same. Whether you were a king or pauper, didn't matter. He'd bring you in. It was, it was just spectacular, all hurt. And that, you know, goes a long way when you're a, a businessman and people like you and respect you because of that. Because he was always there and always, always with the Cuban flag. He loved America. To him, it was the greatest country in the world and appreciates absolutely everything that Americans and this country has was given to him. But he always had the heart of Cuba and was always involved with the politics and donating to all the foundations and always at the front and center of anyone and everyone that came on how to free Cuba. Unfortunately, he died and Cuba's still a prisoner, but you know, someday, maybe I'll go representing him over there and, and see Cuba for him. You know, when, when my dad died, uh, especially during the, the funerals and the wakes, you know, uh, Los Velorio, you hear stories about your father that you didn't know yeah, yeah. and that are surprising and they bring you joy yeah, absolutely. At, in the in the last people, few days, people I don't even know, right? That have come up to you. You don't know what your dad did for me. He did but but dozens of them, man. That I don't even. I know a lot of them, but can you can you think of one one that cause like that surprised you that you've heard recently that you hadn't heard before? Yeah, I mean, most of them are people that came, and he would give a hand to. Right? Guys have told me 
He gave me $10,000, and he barely knew me in Cuba, but I'm a friend of, you know, Jose's over here, and this and that, and he did this for me. He, he let me stay in an, an apartment he had for six months until I got uh, my things going. He bought a house for me and then gave me the notes so I was, so I was able to, to finance it, right? And, and it would do things like that for anybody that was a friend or came through a friend or, or you know, an employee. Um, you know, we started loans for employees where we had everybody, every restaurant had 10, 12 loans that we'd give to employees. And, you know, he was, he was just always doing something, just a, just a very sweet guy within his, uh, you know, he was tough in business, tough as nails and, and did what he needed to do. But on the other hand, money, it wasn't about money to him. It was more about creating something and, and being successful. And, and he just enjoyed business. Like if he was like if it was his greatest hobby and his greatest sport, and you're a fanatical fisherman, he was a fanatical business guy. He just loved doing business. And that's exactly what you expect from the guy that invented the Ventanitas of Miami. You and your dad have a similar story. My dad, he, he'd been living with me, and as, although I lost him in a tragic way, an unexpected way, those months that we lived together, that he lived with me, were the closest that we'd ever been. Like we really got to, and you know, he, he, he lived in Broward. So I got to show him Miami, the Miami that he always wanted. So right. I took him, I took him to La Ventanita here at Versailles, a coffee at night. I took him to Café La Trova and listened to old Cuban music. Right. Uh, I took him to El Esquisito. We played at Domino Park. They let yeah, me right. sneak in, even though I was under the age limit or above the age limit. Uh, <laughs> above the age limit? Well, I was under. The age limit was above where I was allowed to be. <laughs> okay. uh, so I really got to have that experience, and, and uh, I, can, I can only imagine what a joy it was for you to, to get to know your dad no, I in, the, in that way. with my dad is I'm, I'm the only son, right? Uh, the only guy in the family. He was always also the only male in, in his uh, siblings. So, you know, he was my father. He was like my brother. He was like my son. And he was my partner. For 50 years, hand in hand, working, he would point. I would work. He would work. I would point like that back and forth, back and forth, doing everything and everything, absolutely everything together. So, you know, it's a big loss because you get so used to being to someone, even if he's not your father or you love him that much, just any... You and me were working for 50 years, you know, I lose you and, and it's heartbreaking. So for me, it's tough because he's always been my partner, my brother, my, my, my dad. So it's tough, but, you know, it is what it is. He lived a great life, 90 years of, of just joy. So, you know, you, you can't complain. Again, that was Felipe Valls Jr. talking about his father, Felipe Valls Sr., the founder of Versailles and the inventor of the Ventanita. After our chat... Felipe and I walked over to Versailles for a cortadito. The sun was setting, the day winding down, but the little window was as bright and busy as ever. The waitress seemed to know everyone. She calls you caballero or mi amor. Lo que yo de verdad quiero, what I really want is un cortadito. Un cortadito? Con leche evaporada. Anything else would you like a pastelito? I'll have a straight, regular Cuban just like me. This is our meeting place, where locals and tourists crowd the counter for croquetas, chisme, and community. Acuérdate que te queremos, she says. Remember that we love you. 
En la ventanita, it's good vibes only. If you missed any part of our conversation, all Sundial episodes are available on our daily podcast. You can now stay in touch with us via text by joining our Sundial Text Club. Send us your thoughts, comments, or questions by texting the word JOIN to 786-677-0767. Again, that's JOIN to 786-677-0767. Still to come, WLRN's Christine DiMattei introduces us to the New World Symphony's new artistic director. We hear why this is his favorite classical music piece. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Christine DiMatte. 2022 marked 35 years since the creation of the New World Symphony. The Miami Beach-based orchestra was conceived as a training ensemble for young classical musicians in preparation for professional careers. And this year, the New World Symphony announced that renowned conductor Stefan Denev will assume the role of artistic director. The symphony's co-founder, conductor Michael Tilson Thomas, announced earlier this year that he would step down from that role due to health concerns. Tilson Thomas is now New World Symphony's Artistic Director Laureate. We recently spoke to Deneuve, and he told us that his obsession with classical music in his native France began with the help of his very determined mother and a very observant Catholic nun. I was at a Catholic school, and there was an old nun playing the organ in our school chapel. And I was absolutely fascinated by those otherworldly sounds coming from the organ. So I was hiding to listen to her and she discovered me, say, what are you doing there? And I told her that I love the sound of the organ. She proposed to uh, give me some piano lessons. And uh, of course I accepted and she noticed that I had a little gift, let's say, and uh, asked my parents to send me to the conservatoire. And that's how I entered the conservatoire. Uh, I was age 10, so not very young. But then um, very soon I was interested into making music with as many people as I can because I'm very social. And so I did my very first concert as a conductor the day of my 14th birthday. A conducting debut at age 14. How did that come about? <laughs> 
Yes, <laughs> what happened is that uh, I was way too young to enter the conducting class of this conservatoire. And uh, when uh, I wanted to enter, the director of the conservatoire there, there said, uh, I'm sorry, but you know, he's too young, he's learning the piano, uh, let's wait until he's 18 or something. And my mother said to him, well, he's already very tall for his age, which was true. And uh, his director uh, said, okay, okay, maybe to get rid of my mother that day, okay, bring him next week, I will test him. And luckily, luckily he saw something in me and decided to uh, accept me in his class, even if I was indeed only 13 at the time. And uh, I owe him a lot because uh, that, and my mother too, for her persuasion, because I could then start to conduct very early, which was great. When the New World Symphony called you with the news that you were selected as artistic director, only the second in the symphony's history, what went through your mind? It was a dream come true. I love and treasure this institution since my debut there as a guest conductor in 2006, so quite a long time ago, and what Michael Tilson Thomas has achieved uh, over 35 years there is phenomenal. The whole music world really treasure what he uh, created there, the spirit of this institution, the incredible amount of great musicians he nurtured, the sense of excellence, of creativity. Uh, so it was an incredible honor to imagine I would continue his great legacy New World is an orchestral training academy, and you've had extensive experience working with youth orchestras. What would you say is the number one quality that a young classical musician should have to make it in a profession where, let's face it, many people who try it will not succeed? Love for music, enthusiasm, and passion. I think those qualities are first because those qualities will make you become a better musician and master all the technical aspects of what you do and become an ambassador of music for others. And so I think this is really the, the, the first quality to ignite in a young musician uh, to become a great, a great musician. What is your favorite classical piece of all time? <laughs> uh, my favorite classical piece change about every day. You know, musicians, I think we are very unfaithful with, with composers. We love a composer one day, and then the next day you study another piece, and then you feel this is the best piece ever. But still, uh, if you force me to uh, choose a piece to go to a, a desert island, um, maybe I would choose uh, an opera, actually, from um, Debussy called Peleas et Melisande. Uh, it's, a, it's an incredible piece, which is the first opera I conducted uh, when I was student at the Paris Conservatoire, and uh, it is a, a very, very close piece to my heart. I love Debussy. And what we're hearing right now is a production of Pelias et Melisson conducted by Stefan in 2019 at the Dutch National Opera. How good a job is the classical music industry doing when it comes to staying relevant in this digital age? For me, this is uh, the key thing, is to, uh, in an age of playlists, 
in an age of Netflix, you know, how you can continue to be there. And, and the answer is, I believe, um, just showing people that there are great stories in classical music to be told and that they can connect to it in a very easy way. So just show them how accessible uh, the classical music is for them, how diverse the classical music is, how they can represent the whole society. And, uh, and I think there is, there is a great future for, for classical music. Stefan, our listening audience is, uh, has a healthy appreciation for what is good and bad about <laughs> living where we do. So please be honest and tell us your very first impressions of South Florida when you first visited. Uh, very honestly, uh, in 2006, I think, was my first visit, and I was just amazed that there was uh, an orchestra so close to the beach. I loved it. I thought it was just so colorful, and so I, I remember being just so happy to be able to make music with great young musicians and to go so quickly uh, to the beach or to walk, you know, uh, in, uh, in the beautiful streets of uh, South Beach. So that was um, my first impression. And, and I also love uh, the, to eat and I love the Cuban cuisine, for instance. And so uh, I, I'm, I always love to, um, to just enjoy all the offerings that uh, South Beach can offer. What were your first impressions of the New World Center? Oh. I mean, I was blown away, like everybody visiting this center. It's so beautiful. It's so full of light. It's so welcoming. It really uh, shows so easily what people do inside, outside, and especially with the wall cast, which is a dream. It's a unique feature in the world. And uh, to be able to perform for people just walking by the street, and, and I know that thousands of people have been basically surprised by classical music uh, suddenly appearing in the street randomly because they didn't know there would be uh, a concert projected and amplified outdoors. Uh, this is just the best. The wall cast. Stefan, you've traveled all over the world. Now, really, you have not seen anything like New World Symphony's wall cast anywhere in the world, really? No, what happens is that there are a lot of other places in, 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 in Europe that offer open air concerts. That's one thing, but then the whole orchestra is open air. But just to have a, a concert inside the main concert hall that is live projected so well and regularly as a regular feature, this is unique. There's nothing like that in the entire world. We've been speaking with conductor Stefan Denev, the new artistic director of the New World Symphony, only the second in the orchestra's 35-year history. And on behalf of everyone here at WLRN, every good thought and best wishes go out to New World Symphony Artistic Director Laureate Michael Tilson Thomas. For Sundial, I'm Christine DiMattei. And that's Sundown for Thursday, December 22nd. Leslie Obaye Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Leprey-Cohen. 
Our digital editor is Mateos Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor. Our senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Maers is WLRN's vice president of radio and sundials engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up next week on the program, why is America like this? That's one of the many questions explored by syndicated columnist Leonard Pitts Jr. He's retiring from the Miami Herald after three decades. He didn't tiptoe around difficult topics from race to poverty to gun violence. And he joins us to talk about life, plus his early attempt to write about superheroes for Marvel. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. Have a great holiday.